0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast, where we cover everything from crypto trading and investing to NFTs, decentralized finance and so much more. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell financial products. This podcast is sponsored by CoinFlex, the home of crypto yield. Whether you're passively managing money or taking an actively managed approach, you can earn and trade crypto easily on CoinFlex, which sees over $2 billion in daily trading volume. CoinFlex is committed to making crypto derivatives yield accessible to everyone, whether you are investing hundreds or thousands of dollars and more. With a newly launched automated market making product called AMM Plus, you can earn yield on crypto by providing liquidity into the futures markets. The AMM Plus is 10 times more capital efficient than other automated market makers and offers multiple collateral types so that you can earn more with less. Interested in learning more about CoinFlex and trying out the AMM Plus? Head over to coinflex.com slash AMM to get started and let the market work for you. Matt and Brent, thank you so much for hopping on Crypto Unstacked. It's so great to have you on the show with me today.
1: Yeah, thanks for having us, Leslie. Yeah, appreciate you having us.
0: Well, you both have been just All over the news lately, specifically around crypto mining. You know, there's a title on one of the articles that basically tells of two 24-year-olds who are building a multi-million dollar Bitcoin empire, and you're doing so from Beaumont, Texas, I hear. And so, really, today I want to just uncover your story, learn more about you guys, what you're building, and why, you know, having this story of a homegrown, you know, crypto mining. Facility is so important to kind of building out the North American Bitcoin mining narrative, right? As we know, the story is a global one. There's mining facilities all over the world, but a lot is happening in North America and specifically in the US. So excited to hear about your story today.
1: Yeah, happy to chat. Thanks for having us.
0: So- Let's go back to sort of where it all started. I know you guys have told this story uh, quite a few times before, I imagine, to folks who are interested in, in learning more about you guys. But Matt, why don't you give us a backstory from how this all got started from you, for you, where you first heard about Bitcoin, and then Brent, will go over to you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So. I've been in Bitcoin personally since 2016. I went to Texas A&M, which is massive, if not one of the largest oil and gas colleges in the nation, and not for oil and gas, but just for the business side, and met Brent in 2017, became friends with him, obviously was kind of that Bitcoin guy, had been obsessed with it, bull run happened, everyone was kind of very hyper aware of Bitcoin at A&M, and then in 2019, saw a tweet. Uh, by Steve Barber from Upstream Data, who's kind of the grandfather of all this. He had just put down a unit in Texas. I saw that. I immediately called Brett and said, "Hey, uh, you're third generation oil and gas. Are we able to
2: do this?" And it kind of spun from there. Yeah. So, like Matt was saying, I also attended Texas A and M. That's where I met Matt. So, born and raised in Beaumont, Texas area. My family is in the oil and gas industry. So, I came. I was deeply rooted in the energy industry. And uh, when Matt first we were already looking at ways to work together on stuff. We were both a part of some entrepreneurial organizations at Texas A&M and just wanted to find fun things to do to, to, to change things, help change the world. So we uh, Matt sent me that that day and instantly said, hey, do you know where a flare is at? And I was like, yes, I do. I said, actually, you know where one's at? I mean, it just instantly clicked. And I said, we need to go check this out. I said, we need to make sure this is actually real. Like, this is so cool. So we instantly flew up to Canada. I guess like four days later, Matt, it was something absurd. Like we had to put that together so fast and um, went there, checked everything out, saw Steve, realized this was something that worked and something that was a viable business opportunity and was about to really explode. So instantly we actually bought a data center from Steve. That was our very, very, very first data center and then brought it down here. We were the second guys in Texas to have one of these running and the rest was history, the rest is history.
0: Well, I'm curious, right? Brent, you come from you know a long, long history of folks who have been in the oil and gas industry. What was their one reaction like to your request to be like, hey, I need to fly over to Canada. We just figured out that we need to buy this data center because we're going into this Bitcoin mining thing. So I would love to know, you know your family's reaction about that, but also their thoughts on Bitcoin mining as an industry, right? Coming from yeah. this traditional yeah. industry of oil and gas, I imagine there's Lots of skepticism, but also lots of excitement as well.
2: Yeah, there was a lot of skepticism uh, with mining in general, you know, just because until you really go down the rabbit hole with Bitcoin, I feel like you don't. It's very easy to be a critic of Bitcoin. As far as as going up there and checking this out and seeing if it was a new business opportunity, they were actually really supportive. I'd say one thing that is very common about people in the energy industry is is they're willing to take risks. You know, there's a term, oil and gas have a term called wildcatters for a reason. Those are people that risked everything and uh, to find oil and uh, took risk in their life. So I feel like that's just a core competency of oil and gas people. So they were, uh, the risk part, they were totally cool with. They're like, hey, you know what, go up there, check it out. This sounds exciting. Like, I don't know about this Bitcoin stuff, but everything else sounds cool.
0: (laughs) So would you guys be considered digital wildcatters?
2: I'd like to call myself a digital wildcatter. There's actually a group out of Houston that's uh, a media group that's called Digital Wildcatters. So I'm riding their coattail.
0: So you guys met at Texas A&M, had kind of grown up there together. Is that the case?
1: Yes. Yeah, we met freshman year at Texas A&M. Prior to that, hadn't known each other. But yeah, just we're friends for, before we had any business ventures together.
0: So, But I read somewhere that either Matt or Brent, you guys had started side businesses as early as in high school. So even before this Bitcoin mining venture, you guys had already kind of pushed into the entrepreneurial world. Is is that the case?
1: Yeah. So kind of one of the things that brought Brent and I together as a common denominator is we both had commercial landscape businesses in high school. And so I sold those to pay for college. Yeah, that was kind of when we met each other that we found that in common and kind of one of the first things we realized about each other. Yeah.
2: Nice. Yeah, I had one in high school.
0: What is it like to be a young entrepreneur kind of facing this otherwise behemoth energy industry, right? But coming at it from the Bitcoin mining angle, was there anything in the first, call it six months of you guys starting Giga Energy that you thought, you know what, like this is going to be a major, major challenge for us because we're not coming necessarily from traditional oil and gas?
1: As it relates to that, I mean, so we went to Texas um A&M. massive oil and gas energy college. So alumni alone, we had a massive amount of connections. And so from the energy perspective, it wasn't daunting. It was more so from the technical perspective and trying to communicate that to this kind of older generation of energy folks. That was more so the more difficult task. Obviously in 2019, Bitcoin was in a bear market. No one cared about Bitcoin. No one cared about Bitcoin mining. And so communicating that in a succinct way where I was like, hey, this is a great business opportunity. That was more so the difficult part. And those first, call
2: it 12 months, in my opinion.
0: Brent, do you have anything to add to that from your early conversations?
2: Yeah, I would say that one thing that we saw was it, you did have people that were skeptical about it, people that, you know, we could see, hey, this is going to be a challenge to communicate this process to some people. But overall, we were really surprised with, especially within Texas, how open doors were for us to come talk to people because they were excited about this, right? And this is still something. I was at an oil and gas conference about a month ago. That's one of the biggest ones in the nation. And I almost heard as much talk about Bitcoin mining as I did about oil and gas. And this wasn't even about Bitcoin mining. The fact is, is that this is something new and something exciting in this industry. And people want to get educated and want to learn about it.
0: I mean, tell us a bit more about the crypto mining ecosystem at large in Texas, Brent. How active of an industry is it?
2: Yeah, Texas is a Bitcoin country. So we always say there are Bitcoin cowboys all over the place that are changing the world right here in the state of Texas. I would say you're going to see in the next next five years, Bitcoin in Texas will be a very, very, very big thing. And it will be the hub of the world for Bitcoin mining. The way you got to think about it is it's not just oil and gas, right? Bitcoin uses energy and Texas is the energy hub of the world, whether it's oil and gas, whether it's wind, whether it's solar. And we have all three of those things and a lot of abundance of those three things in this state. And because of that, people are seeing that and people are acting on that and taking advantage of the opportunity.
0: Well, let's dive into... Giga Energy, there's a lot to explore here, right? But let's peel back the layers a bit for our audience who might not be so tuned into the latest that's happening in crypto mining. So in terms of Giga Energy, from what I understand, it's a vertically integrated natural gas Bitcoin mining company. Basically, what you're doing is bring Bitcoin mining onto oil well sites, right? And Basically, monetizing on natural gas in a way that is, you know, positive for the environment as well. And so, let's kind of get started there in terms of why is this the model for Giga Energy? Why does it make sense to start here versus going towards renewables first, which I understand is also a trend?
1: Yeah. So, on that side of things, so kind of our business structure alone. So, we, Manufacture data centers in house. We manufacture generators in house. Uh, We have full staff technicians as well as fabricators. So we do everything in house just from a speed and timeline standpoint. And then, of course, we deploy, manage, own, and operate all of our assets on oil and gas well sites. And we purchase that natural gas from the operators and translate that to a really low energy cost. From our perspective, there's a place kind of both for renewables as well as off grid mining or natural gas Bitcoin mining as it relates specifically to the cost of power and scalability, right? There's debates within that, but in terms of timeline, uh, natural gas Bitcoin mining, there's very few things in the world where if you have the right processes in place, you don't have to rely on anyone else. You can turn on power in 12 hours. If you go on grid, you got years of regulation within ERCOT, say that's a regulatory council within Texas. So very specific things where if you go off grid, it's the wild west. You have natural gas and a jenny, like you can turn power on real quick. And so that's really kind of the fun part of, of what we enjoy doing.
2: I think to add to that as well is we are, when we started this, you know, given my background with oil and gas and my family's background and Matt, his background with everything he had, we are indifferent, right? If we would have had a solar form or a wind form, I guess we could have gone and mined Bitcoin there as well. However, we knew that there was a problem with flaring. So growing up in the oil field, I always saw a lot of flaring. I knew that it was wasteful. I knew it was something that could be taken care of. I just didn't know how it could be taken care of. And just to kind of give you context, there's enough gas flared off in the state of Texas each year to power the entire state. So that should really tell you something. Like, there's a problem. And our view was, if we can go ahead and start addressing this problem, and we have the knowledge to be one of the people that can tackle this issue, like, that's where we should start as well as it was just icing on top that the cost of power with flare gas mining is the cheapest in the world. So that was just like, that's why this has exploded this industry, in my opinion.
0: Well, you guys mentioned during an early conversation that you guys are the second natural gas Bitcoin miners in the state of Texas. So that means there's only one other company that's going this route. Why is that? Like, is it very energy intensive to just get some sort of site going for natural gas? Or do you need the relationships to get this business to happen?
1: Yeah. So we were the second ones in Texas. So there's still obviously much more coming online. We're just one of the first with it. Off-grid natural gas Bitcoin mining, it's very difficult to do from an operational and technical perspective, right? You're talking about a generator with 200 moving parts that are designed to be replaced and they will break on you. You're talking about very harsh environments. You're talking about Really hot or really cold environments, and so from an engineering and operational standpoint, it's difficult. Albeit not so difficult that there's not a lot of people in the space. So I mean, there's probably ten or twenty people in Texas right now doing it. There's publicos that are unannounced mining Bitcoin with natural gas. Some one ConocoPhillips has announced that they're doing it. So it's definitely live in a well, and probably one of the kind of biggest fads in the space right now is what I would say in terms of everyone's asking about natural gas Bitcoin mining.
0: And how did you guys get the first site? Was it through a relationship or, you know, how much time did it take to actually pitch that idea?
1: Yeah. So the first site, it's relatively easy on the producer side, right? You're just saying, hey, I'll pay for your gas. You're the one in charge of finding a generator, finding a data center, finding the ASICs, putting it all together, managing the data center, managing the generator, managing the ASICs. And so that's kind of the intricacies of it. On top of that, all the capital required. And so um, finding the producers uh, just kind of through a series of relationships said, hey, you're getting zero for your gas. What if we pay you something for your gas? And that's really kind of how we got started.
0: I mean, let's talk a bit more about the operational side and also the financing side, right? Because people coming in saying, Matt, you just mentioned you need all these things that you have to find, source, and then manage, right? And then you have the labor, not to mention, it's not just you both. You have a great team of 10 people, I hear, who's you know building up this operation, right? But let's start on the operational side and go back to one of the earlier points that you made, Matt, about you know how you're sourcing energy. Where is that coming from?
1: Yeah. So as Brent alluded to, right, there's a massive abundant amount of natural gas uh, in the U.S. and Texas alone. So that is, at least from our business model, a relationship game. It's kind of who you know, chitty chatter, going around, buddies, cousins, friend. Right. I mean, that's literally how it's done because you're talking old Texas energy from a relationship professional standpoint. Sometimes we get inbounds from that, um, but it's much more usually relationships. So that's kind of identify through relationships, natural gas. Next would be, say, okay, well, now we need a generator. So we have a 4,000-square-foot remanufacturing facility where we physically manufacture generators. So we're talking 1,200-horsepower, 24-foot-long engines that combust this natural gas and create electricity. They're about a quarter million dollars each. I mean, these are massive engines. And so have a team of technicians that are manufacturing those engines just as quickly as we need them. The next part that's kind of going in tandem would be the data centers. They're agnostic whether they can go on or off-grid, but obviously we make them for an off-grid application. So we have a team of technicians and fabricators and welders where we wire up all those, create those out of 40-foot shipping containers. And when we have all the parts in front of us, we can assemble them in about four days. So really, really, really fast process. And the goal is, hey, let's do it as quickly as possible. That is kind of the main goal on that front. From there, obviously, you put the two products together. ASICs are kind of the next step within that. And so you want to get ASICs at the very last minute and deliver them directly to the well site. Those are highly capital intensive. You can have multiple different generations, right? So you can have a Gen 1, which would be an S9. You can have a Gen 2, which would be S17 or M20. And then you can have a Gen 3, which would be S19 or M30, right? We tend to run Gen 1, Gen 2. Just from a capital allocation standpoint, we're much more interested from energy perspective than we are plugging in a computer. And so, bring all that together. Getting Gen One, Gen Two computers is a lot easier than getting a Gen Three computer. Gen Three computers are backlogged, future orders. Now you have the S nineteen XPs coming out, right? It's a whole mess. We don't really want to deal with that. So you kind of slap them all together, send them up uh, north, south, wherever you may need to go to the actual well site. You crane in these physical products. I mean, the generator alone is fifty thousand pounds. So you crane that in drop it down on the well pad. You got to run these massive, thick electrical lines. I mean, it's tens of thousands of dollars just of copper to get it from data center to generator of flowing that electricity. And then of course, plugging in computers and bring it all online. So it's a very long-winded, capital-intensive, labor-intensive, technically intensive process.
0: Brent, what part of that process do you come in?
2: Well, so now, I mean, when we first started, all of it, we were the janitors of the company, we were the accountants of the company, and we were, the, I guess, the CEOs of the company. We did it all. Now, my main focus is is um, energy. So I'm the one sourcing that. I'm the one that's typically trying to build out these relationships to find that energy. Like Matt was saying, Texas oil and gas, and really oil and gas in general, is a very relationship Driven industry where if you don't know somebody that knows them or if you uh, don't have an existing relationship with them, chances are they're not going to answer your call because they've been ripped off so many times. You know, growing up, my dad always said the only place that has more criminals than the prison is the oil and gas industry, uh, which was just a little side joke he would always make. And basically, you know, it's just what it is is a lot of a lot of oil and gas guys are paranoid. They're they're skeptical to allow just two twenty three year olds to just come on their oil side and say, Yeah, I'm just gonna like plug this in and take your natural gas and don't mind these like sci-fi, you know, utopian looking computers. We're just gonna plug those in as well. And uh, you know, people have called them Christmas lights before. Like they don't even know what they are sometimes. So it was difficult, but that's my main focus now is just relationships.
0: Well Brent, you guys work with over twenty and counting, right? Oil companies Why are they so eager to get into Bitcoin mining this subset of companies? You know, why now?
2: Yeah, yeah. We're talking with companies all the time. And companies are two things. One is they realize this is a viable business opportunity. Enough people have done it. And there's been people on the sidelines watching for a while that finally said, "Okay, this does work. We have flare gas. We have stranded gas. Let's do this. As well as I think you're also seeing a time where with ESG and everything else happening right now, oil and gas is in a tough spot. And whether or not, you know, love it or hate it, we all know that that's the truth, that they're getting penalized for flaring and stuff like that. So I think right now they're seeing this as an opportunity to say, okay, hey, look, I am flaring. Nobody likes wasting energy. Nobody likes stuff like, you know, impacting the environment. So if they can say, I can find a way that I can stop this, I can help clean up and have a more efficient extraction of my hydrocarbons. I think everybody wants to see that. And I think they're excited about that.
0: And are these exclusive deals and partnerships with oil companies? Like could they do the, the exact same thing with others? You know, bring other um sort of machines and shipping containers and, and all of that stuff onto the same oil site, or is it typically exclusive?
2: It just depends. I mean, most of them are not exclusive. I mean, they want to work with us because they've built a relationship with us and they've seen that we've done this for a long time. And that we're trustworthy guys in this industry to do this.
0: So a lot of these companies are based in the US, right? Are you speaking to those outside as well in other parts of the world who also want to get into crypto mining?
2: Yeah, we've talked to other companies. You know, Matt can even add to this because he's been the one that's talked to a lot of them in different parts of the country. I think most of those have mainly just been on a help sell them a product where they can get up and running kind of situation or an educational conversation of saying, hey, like this is what we encountered. This is the problems what we had. Uh, if we could go back and change something, this is what we would change. I don't think we have plans as of right now to go mine Bitcoin outside the United States just because, like I was saying, there's enough flare gas in Texas just to power the state. So we have plenty of work to be done just right here.
0: Matt, take us through a bit of the story behind financing an operation as large as this, right? What does it take?
1: Yeah, millions of dollars. So that's kind of the chicken egg question I get asked a lot, right? There's a lot of people that want to get into the space. They're like, how do I get started, right? And it's like, well, you got to have operational experience. Well, if I want to get operational experience. I got to get money, but I don't have any money. So it's kind of a circular issue. But there's more and more financing coming into the space. Um, some great lenders out there at Galaxy Digital, and there's a lot of firms out in New York where they do have these financing options where you can put up Bitcoin as collateral and where you can put up the machines as collateral and go in this process. So it's becoming more and more available, um, but it's definitely much more towards the non-retail side of things. As it relates to capital expenditure, one of our kind of in our mission statement is like we look at the lowest capital expenditure possible. And so that's why we do everything in-house, both from a speed and capital expenditure standpoint. So we're manufacturing equipment 50 cents on the dollar and, and multiples quicker. From the standpoint of yeah, just high capital intensity, there's a lot of firms out there that are doing a great job in terms of publicly traded companies, right? Growing and growing, but you do see a stifle new participants entering into the market because they're like, I'll do this. I don't have any money. And so we were fortunate enough to kind of get in early when the barrier wasn't so high. And so we were able to kind of use our own funding internally to bootstrap ourselves. And then to the point of which the coin mining blew up, right? It was kind of... I remember when I was like having a pain wiring $50 per unit of computer, right? Now they're 500. And that's kind of the cheap computer. And I remember one s nineteens were two thousand dollars, and I thought that was ridiculously high. Now they're ten thousand dollars, right? And so the numbers have all shifted. And so now, personally in our company, right, we're venture backed um, through multiple funds, uh, bitcoin only funds within uh, kind of Texas and the u s. throughout
0: well, when you said earlier that there are these loans that you can use crypto mining equipment as collateral, right? For how does that actually work in terms of valuing that collateral? Is this all something that has to be analyzed on site?
1: Yeah. And some of the lenders, they have direct connections to ASIC manufacturing. So they sell you the ASICs directly through them and then lend against the own product that they're selling. So that's probably one of the most common ways. You can go through the traditional financing way where serialize the assets. And then put a kind of a lean on them and kind of hold nine yards. But normal kind of function of hey, you want eighteen percent interest and you want these asics quick, is you purchase the asics kind of through a third party lender. They finance them. You put up some form of collateral on top of usually Bitcoin on top of the asics, and then you get going from there.
0: Yeah, I imagine people tuning in are saying like, do these asics depreciate similar to the way that you know new cars depreciate as soon as you drive them off the lot, you know and with all these new iterations coming out, right, different versions one, two, three, the rate of change for, you know, the value of mining equipment, I imagine, is increasing because the speed of all the different components, you know, the speed of manufacturing these is also increasing as well, right?
1: Yeah. Well, so the one big difference, though, right? So we went through from CPUs to GPUs to FPGAs to ASICs from 2009 to now for mining Bitcoin you're talking magnitudes of change from a CPU to GPU, et cetera. Now that you're on the A6, the S9 is kind of the flagship first large-scale ASIC. It came out in 2016. It's a 14-nanometer chip. From then, we've gone from 14-nanometer, 7-nanometer, to 5-nanometer. 5-nanometer is the same as your MacBook Pro. So this iteration cycle, we've kind of reached the equivalent of our other hyper-efficient computing solutions. And so... From kind of, we've gone from parabolic increases in efficiency to marginal increases in efficiency. So S9 has about 100 joules per tera hash of efficiency, to the Gen 2, which is about 50 joules per tera hash. So you have a 100% increase, and then from 50 joules per tera hash to 29.5 on the S19s. So again, not that great. And then from the S19s, which is 29.5 to the S19 XPs, which are still five nanometer, which is 21 joules per terahash. That's just marginally increasing. So you're seeing kind of this slowing down in this. And what's interesting is the S9s are still profitable. And what these units do is they track their total future cash flows, just similar to kind of any other product out there. And it's reasonable to kind of see that, right? And so... The units, they fluctuate. And so if you were to ask me, what do they depreciate on? I'd say, well, they're going to appreciate or depreciate based on Bitcoin's pricing and the hash rate out there. Uh, that is kind of what they're tracking. So S9s, is crazy. They were manufactured in 2016 for six years ago, and they're still profitable. Like we're still making a ridiculous amount of money on them. And so that kind of really shows to the fact that unless we see parabolic increases in Bitcoin hash rates at 205 million terahashes right now. That's like, for it to go from 200 to 300x ashes is another 10 gigawatts of electricity, which is like just a ridiculous amount of infrastructure. In 2017, we saw it go from 10x ashes to 100x ashes. Like that's a lot more reasonable because that's like when the S9s came out was during that 2017 bull run. And so what you're seeing now is kind of this like real world supply chains and like physics coming into play where it's like, hey guys, like, We can't handle this. And that's really kind of the really fascinating thing is seeing Bitcoin affect the breaker market in Puerto Rico because everyone's buying them. Like, that's what's really cool right now.
0: Wow. Interesting. Let's dive deeper then into the actual energy consumption, right, of Bitcoin mining. The University of Cambridge is often cited for all things on numbers when it comes to Bitcoin mining. They've done a lot of research on this. And one unit that is often cited is the annual power consumption of Bitcoin mining, which is about 130 terawatt hours, according to one of their reports. I mean, why does Bitcoin mining consume so much energy?
1: Yeah. So, well, OK, in regards to the argument that Bitcoin should use less energy or not exist, I think Jameson Lopp, um, great, great developer and kind of works at, at Casa, his quick quote is something to the effect of the fact of, the market is showing that it values thermodynamic security and the elimination of trusted third parties from the monetary system. You're free to disagree, but your opinion is irrelevant. The game is afoot. It's kind of, I think what he said. And so in terms of like Bitcoin as a decentralized like network, like it's going to happen. People are economically incentivized to find cheap electricity and use it. And so people complain all the time about it. It's like, Great, but it's still happening, so you can't really do anything about it. Maybe on like a country by country basis, you can ban it. We saw that happen in China; it just flows to the next one, and so it's still going to happen, especially if the economics are there, right? If Bitcoin goes to 60k, 100k, 200k, and US bans it, you bet yourself that people are going to find a place to plug those computers in and make that delta on that revenue. And so, okay, and then so that's that's kind of the technical side; it's going to happen no matter what. From the uh, energy consumption side. There's a lot of complaints about how much energy it uses. And the majority of those arguments are not kind of from like the proof of work, proof of stake. Majority of it's just like Elizabeth Warren, who says Bitcoin energy consumption is bad. We need to stop, right? And that argument really boils down to the fact of she doesn't view Bitcoin as valuable. She does not see any point in it, which is reasonable. But if you see zero value in something, then any amount of energy consumption is a waste, Right. So that's kind of the main issue on that, in my opinion. Then there's kind of the nuanced argument of proof of work versus proof of stake. And can get into that. But at a very high level, most people just say Bitcoin uses too much energy because it's useless. It's worthless. It's magic, money, magic internet money, right? I can understand their reasoning with that argument. As it relates to Bitcoin uses as much electricity as Argentina, there's actually this parabolic decrease in terms of like energy consumptions that second or third world countries use. And so I think like, washing machines use more than Argentina, maybe, right? So like, there's kind of this also nuanced argument that that's a little bit of a deceiving or fallacious argument in that sense, right? When people kind of like take, oh, yeah, it is the 33rd country in the world, but like only the top five use a mass amount of energy, everyone else is kind of leaking on that. But I think what is important to note is an argument I see a lot is saying, hey, Bitcoin only uses 0.12% of the world's energy, right? That is factually correct. But they use that to justify the fact of, hey, it's not that much energy consumption, so it's okay. Well, following that train of thought, we would say, well, if it does use a lot, is it bad? And so if Bitcoin goes to a million dollars or when it goes to a million dollars or becomes prices out USD and becomes a unit of account, it's going to use like 10%, 20% of the world's energy. So the argument no longer is it uses a little bit of energy. The argument is its energy use is justified because it replaces a monetary system that in and out of itself is inefficient. And Bitcoin goes after wasted resources or waste energy or renewable energy or underutilized energy. That is the argument by opinion. So if Bitcoin goes parabolic, it will consume 10 to 20% of the world's energy. Will it search for cheap energy spur on new energy production, right? That's Jayvon's paradox, right? Just because we have more fuel efficient cars doesn't mean we drive less miles, we drive more miles. And so that's the unique thing about Bitcoin mining is how it incentivizes new energy growth. I think if you look at the R squared in terms of GDP versus energy consumption, like it's 82%, I think. Like There's a very direct correlation to countries that use a lot of energy and countries that have a lot of wealth. Using energy is a good thing. It helps keep the lights on. It helps like people do productive activities, right? We don't have to physically use our hands anymore because we can have robots using electricity. That is the important thing to me and how I see proof of work. For instance, we're not consuming electricity from the grid. We're creating our own. Does that take a percentage of the world's energy? Yes. Is that kind of disingenuous how you frame it? Yes.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. Thank you for taking us through that. I I think that was a really relatable explanation to if I can call it an age-old question that people have about Bitcoin mining, because if fundamentally you don't ascribe value to Bitcoin either as money or as a technology, right? As a tool, then yeah, everything else goes out the window because your explanation will be tied to your thesis about something. So that's super interesting to me. I mean, Brent, do you have anything to add to that? Like, are you sort of on the same fence there or do you have other thoughts?
2: Yeah, I totally agree with, I mean, everything Matt's saying. At the end of the day, we have a lot of negative comments and posts about what we're doing in the space, even though we're lowering emissions with this flared and stranded gas. And I think what it is, is people just don't get it, right? So we see comments all the time that I see, I see people saying, you know all this energy and all this money and they're solving sudokus right and like they're what it is is they, is they don't deem bitcoin valuable and it makes sense right like i can reason with that if you comp- if you do not understand bitcoin you probably won't think bitcoin's valuable uh, which therefore any energy you use to mine bitcoin would be a waste but one thing i will emphasize that i think is great is bitcoin incentivizes incentivizes people to use stranded energy and and incentivizes to reduce waste in my opinion because it's the first time that you've seen liquidity brought to stranded energy there's so much energy in this world that is not near society and it's hard to store energy it's hard to contain energy so therefore a lot of energy in this world is just wasted or not able to be utilized because it's just not near people right like you know Uh, West Texas, they have the sun belt and the wind belt in the United States, and they both intersect right in the middle of West Texas. And there's not a lot of demand for energy in West Texas, but there's plenty of wind and there's plenty of sun. Well, this in a lot of ways incentivizes renewables. You know, there's so many different ways that Bitcoin just incentivizes innovation in the energy sector. And I think that's what we're going to end up seeing long term play out is Bitcoin's going to end up, what is what, Matt, you can add in if I say it wrong, but I mean, there's a quote from Satoshi Nakamoto that says, Bitcoin mining should end up where energy is cheapest, right? And I agree with that. Because at the end of the day, Bitcoin mining incentivizes to find the cheapest energy. And many times, the places that have the cheapest energy means that it has the least amount of demand, uh, which means society probably wasn't using it anyways.
0: Okay, this is getting super interesting. This is the heart of it, I think. And you guys have done an incredible job of just making the explanation really accessible. I mean, another question that people might have to, you know, follow up on this is do you think bitcoin has succeeded as money, right? Like to your point of Satoshi Nakamoto and his his thoughts on how bitcoin mining will go where energy is the cheapest. I mean, that was all in context of Bitcoin as money. And it seems like that narrative has gone completely 180 from there, where now it's primarily store value, as opposed to means of payment. What are your thoughts on that Bitcoin as money?
1: Yeah, so something that kind of transitions to a unit of account, right? If I say 20 bucks an hour, you have an idea of like, oh, that's that's pretty good pay. i say I'll pay a dollar an hour. You're like, that's not worth it. If I say 0.03 Bitcoin per hour, doesn't click right that's what unit of account is so the iteration of time to get to unit of account where you have a btc denominated world it has to go through steps of iterations so first is the fact that anyone is willing to assign value to bitcoin right that was with the bitcoin pizza some amount like someone was saying that is worth something it's worth the pizza next is kind of the medium of exchange okay It's not like people aren't really kind of using it, but like they're at least buying drugs with it and they're using it to swap out. It's like a medium of exchange is something you don't really want to hold, but you only want to hold it to get something else. And so Bitcoin in each phase of that step, it is that phase and then the next, right? So it's kind of this iteration. So it's a medium of exchange. There's value assigned to it. The next one is a store of value, right? And that's kind of the phase we're in where it's like, hey, me, myself in 2016 was willing to put my whole net worth and college savings in Bitcoin And say, I'm gonna hodl it, right? That is like pretty extremist, but there are people doing that. There are people that have their their savings or majority of their savings in that, right? And as Bitcoin's volatility decreases, the number of users that use it as a store of value increases. And so that's kind of what's going on. And you gotta remember, right? We're pricing this in the USD. If you go somewhere else where the volatility of their local currency is higher than BTC's volatility, what's gonna be more favorable? And as more users enter into the market, volatility drops, users goes up, and kind of get this positive feedback loop. And so right now we're in the medium exchange phase, we're in the store value phase. And in order for it to be money, right, it's like I'm willing to like kind of just trade in this, forget about dollars, have this exchange platform. That's the next phase to go in. And that's gonna be the longest phase. So we're trying to assign value to a twelve year old currency, thirteen year old currency and it's having price discovery. And right now its competition is like gold. And gold had like 2,000 years to get to a $10 trillion market cap. Bitcoin did it in 12 years. And so that is kind of the iterative phase of like price discovery. And when you have an asset that is completely inelastic and doesn't respond to changes in demand, of course, you're going to have big increases and decreases in volatility, right? But if I truly believe I have gold at 100 bucks an ounce, I'm not going to sell. Why would I do that? I'm going to hold, wait till it goes up to $2,000 an ounce. And so the point at which Bitcoin becomes money, which is a very arbitrary word, but in my opinion, that's a unit of account, something people are willing to kind of trade, settle, kind of use and say, I want to use business as the dollar, is when Bitcoin's volatility is its lowest, right? And there's very little upside to it. Right now, there's still a tremendous amount of upside. And so... But again, that's from a very privileged perspective. That's from me with the U.S. dollar and the world reserve currency as my bias. From someone in El Salvador, right, it already is their money. And so I think that answer is different to multiple people who you ask. And I'm going to be one of the last to answer it. And some other people are already the first to answer it. But yeah, that's really kind of what our opinion is.
0: Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. yeah, trying to always put our answers into context of where we are, you know, how we relate to Bitcoin. A lot of people just see it as an investment for us, whereas others, everything that they earn from every paycheck is going into Bitcoin, right? Or is going into you know a stable coin because they're dealing with hyperinflation in their local currency, right? So yeah, putting th- those explanations into context is super important. Brent, anything you wanted to add on that part? Do you think it succeeded? Do you think it succeeded in other ways apart from money? I'm just
2: going to leave it where Matt was at. I think he hit the nail right on the head.
0: (laughs) Would it be crazy to ask whether you guys consider yourselves uh, Bitcoin maximalists?
2: Yeah,
1: I consider myself a Bitcoin minimalist. I spend all my time in Bitcoin. That's honestly all I really care about because I think that's where the majority of the change in the world can be invoked. Um, Not to say this other stuff's going to fail or whatever. I don't know. But I think the most impact in the world is with the internet of money. And that's really kind of what my focus is
2: on. Yeah. I would also consider myself a Bitcoin minimalist. I have all the values of a Bitcoin maxi, of course. But at the end of the day, you know, our business is centered around Bitcoin. That's what I prioritize because that's what our company, you know, more education on Bitcoin means more understanding of, of our company which helps with growth of our company. So therefore my view is is I need to spend all my time learning about this. And I think that it will always be the most relevant cryptocurrency in the space. And I do think that we will see a day where there's a Bitcoin standard. So I I want to be a part of that and uh, not get sidetracked looking at NFTs or bored apes or whatever it is.
0: That's too funny. So, guys, as we wrap up here, you know, I've learned so much from you both. It is helping me to better explain myself to others, right, who are new to the space, what this whole energy conversation is about when it comes to Bitcoin mining, but I imagine a lot of people tuning in are interested to know, you know, as you guys are expanding, growing the team, as you're looking for new talent, right? What qualities are you looking for in these types of candidates? And what roles are you hiring for?
1: We're hiring for welders, electricians, fabricators, <laughs> all the six-figure blue collar jobs you can imagine. But from an employment standpoint, I think what I look for most is one communication. I think 99% of problems in the world personally and professionally stem from lack of communication or miscommunication, like everything, in my opinion. And so people that can communicate, hear communication correctly and get that across, even if you can like do it like 80% of the way, I think that reduces a massive amount of friction. So I think being a good communicator is really important for us. And then um, moving really fast within the Bitcoin space. We work seven days a week. One year in Bitcoin is a 10 year market cycle. Uh, So that's, that's just, An absolute, right? So like when I hear like get an email and it's like, oh, like, yeah, let's schedule a call in a couple of weeks. I'm like pulling my hair out. I'm like, what's wrong with you? Like you're just wasting time. So
0: I don't have a couple of weeks moving on to the next deal.
1: (laughs) No, you literally don't. You don't. You don't. So people that get that kind of sense of urgency, we we really value. And then problem solvers is what I would say. Um, People create problems and people solve problems and people that kind of look at something and say, I'm just going to figure it out. Right. Like that's what Brett and I have been doing for the past years. We didn't know how to operate a generator. We just looked at it and said, I don't know where to start, but we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. And pragmatically, most stuff in this world isn't that hard. You just have to be willing to do the work. So those are kind of the three main areas that we look
0: at. Brett, anything you want to add there?
2: Yeah, I mean I think Matt summed it up. I think that um, at the end of the day, a lot of people don't realize that the people that are gonna do the best in this industry are are the the blue collar, the blue collar people in this world because at the end of the day, Bitcoin is, is created on the idea of proof of work. And proof of work means you have to get your hands dirty. It means that at the end of the day, physical infrastructure has to get built. While we still have to do Excel models and everything else, and you know we do a lot of finance, at the end of the day, uh, we want to be office light, field heavy, because that's where the infrastructure gets built. And uh, we're seeing people that you know building out a facility on an oil and gas site to mine Bitcoin, that's nothing. Right. They worked on drilling rigs all their life, throwing chains on oil pipes and just like doing like the most like heavy duty, hardcore work you can imagine. And those people that are skilled in specific aspects and are specific industries within, you know, Bitcoin in general, you know, so there's so many things that ended up being such an asset for Bitcoin that people have worked their whole life in that had no idea that would end up being so important. I think those people are going to see that they're going to be on the forefront. They're going to change the world.
1: Yeah. I think what's cool is like, in my opinion, it sounds cheap, but you really build your own journey. So at A&M, it was kind of 2017, people that graduated in our class, class of 21. There was one guy and none of these people know each other. One guy who found his way in and got a role as an analyst at a Bitcoin mining firm. There's another guy who started a kind of Bitcoin VC. There's another guy who got a job at Bitcoin Magazine. There's another guy who started, found me and got a job as our director of product operations who i didn't know in college right just kind of throughout everything right did that we started Brett and i started the, the texas a m bitcoin club we got a bitcoin conference that got ray dalio bill miller at texas a m so i think like what's so interesting about that is that's all like a bunch of kids at a m just college kids like but they said i want to be in bitcoin and they found a way and like, it is very much possible, like, and none of them were programmers, right? I think that's the most important thing. I like, oh, I don't have, I can't program. How am I supposed to get in Bitcoin, right? Like, you can do it. Like, there are specific ways of, like, going about it. It's just, like, you have to try hard and figure it out. And, like, man, like, like I've seen people do it over and over and again. If they're, like, I'm obsessed with Bitcoin, it's the new internet. How do I get into it? You can find a place. And it's, like, that was in 2020. <laughs> it's, like, getting easier and easier every year to do so. So uh, that's why I found it so cool.
2: And I think one other thing to add to everything Matt was saying that just it really like I think it's just crazy. It's like it is such a it's an industry that needs critical thinkers so badly because it's really the people that just want to jump in and like figure stuff out. And because we've had numerous times over this journey that people have asked us, well, like, you know, have you Googled this? Like, let's check into this and see what the right way. You know what? How does this work? And then we've looked around and we're like, I'm pretty sure we're the ones that are supposed to figure this out. I mean, I don't know if anyone's done this. So it's such a new industry that has so many problems and challenges that still haven't even been tackled. And it's the engineers and the innovators that want to tackle those problems headfirst and uh, figure them out.
0: Well, guys, your journey got started in 2019 when you were both sophomores in college. In 2021, you guys apparently made $4 million running this operation. And you're on your way to growing this more full scale, right, adding more people onto the team. And I really, truly cannot wait to report on this, maybe, you know, one year down the line, see where you guys are at. And just yet be part of that journey with you. Thanks so much for sharing your stories with us. It was great having you both on Crypto Unstacked.
1: Thanks for having us, Leslie. Yeah, thank you for having us.